Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. We've been going down the AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of, purportedly, the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We are now down to number nine on the list. Which means that on this episode, we'll be talking about Jerry Goldsmith's score for the 1974 neo-noir favorite, Chinatown. Chinatown was written by Robert Town, produced by Robert Evans, and it was directed by Roman Polanski. John, give us the basics of Chinatown. Chinatown is a detective story that takes place in 1937 Los Angeles. The protagonist is hard-boiled private investigator Jake Giddis, who, through his investigations, gets drawn into a web of conspiracy and intrigue. Jake Giddis is played by Jack Nicholson. His client, Evelyn Mulray, is played by Faye Dunaway. And her dangerous and powerful father, Noah Cross, is played by John Huston. Jake Giddis is an ex-policeman who used to work the Chinatown beat, where he was told to do as little as possible, because you couldn't know who was good or bad. Chinatown comes to serve as a symbol for the impenetrable fog of futility he finds himself in, as he explores more and more of this sordid tale of municipal water politics, corruption, and family tragedy. Good enough? Good enough. Andy, do you remember at the end of last episode when I was previewing that we were going to talk about this score, I said that I couldn't imagine there being two scores from the same composer on this list that are as different, as far apart as Jerry Goldsmith's score for Planet of the Apes that we've talked about previously and his score for this movie for Chinatown. I do remember you saying that. It was ringing in my ears (laughs) as I was watching the movie and thinking about the score. Yeah, well, it was sort of ringing in my own ears as well. And you know what? (laughs) This music is actually, a lot of it is not... (laughs) As different from Planet of the Apes as I was remembering. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I thought. I thought John hadn't seen Chinatown in a while when he said that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the music that, you know, you call to mind when you think back on what does Chinatown sound like. Is what we just heard. Right. That gorgeous trumpet melody. But uh, a lot of this score sounds kind of like this. It's this weird, ambient, clunky, dissonant stuff that, yeah, has a lot of similarities to some of the alien landscape stuff that he did for Planet of the Apes. Yeah, I mean, it kind of is alien landscape music here, too. (laughs) It's just not as alien a landscape, or it's alien for different reasons. But it kind of is a hostile world kind of sound makes up a lot of this score. Yeah, like uh, Jack Nicholson goes out and tries to figure out what Hollis Mulray is doing in the dry Los Angeles riverbed. And he sees him look at a map and talk to a boy on a horse and what in the world is going on. It's this parched desert landscape that, you know, does or doesn't it have water there? He's spying on it from afar. It's a very tense and uneasy sound.
Yeah, it's a landscape, just like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when Charlton Heston in Planet of the Apes is walking around on some distant planet, so he thinks, and there's this music to show how far from comfort and home he is, how weird these environments are. And it's pretty much serving the same kind of function here when we see the parched riverbed, like you said. Or, sort of metaphorically, we see things that the detective protagonist doesn't yet fully understand. He's looking at them inquisitively to investigate them. They are mysterious to him, and this is like the surface of this mystery. You don't know what the interior is yet, so it's Mm -hmm. data. This is the sound of the thing that you don't understand that needs to be investigated. Huh. I remember you saying that Goldsmith was particularly gifted in coming up with textural ideas and conceiving of musical timbres in interesting ways, and that that was a particular strength of his that was obviously on very evident display for Planet of the Apes, and it was impossible not to make the connection. He reaches into some of the same bags of tricks here. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about this ensemble that this score is written for. Yeah. It's a very strange set of instruments, and uh, I think that's one of the luxuries of writing for movies, is that you're just going to have the one recording session, so you can assemble an orchestra that would not normally be assembled. You just have to make sure you can get them into the room, you know, for one week. Right. So you pick stuff that would not be convenient for performing forces anywhere else. Right, because, you know, your city's orchestra has got a standard collection of instruments, a certain number of strings, certain number of brass and winds, etc. They're all on salary. So, yeah, you can't just have a concert that has only strings and one trumpet and four pianos. <laughs> and four harps. And four harps. That's what Goldsmith has here, is string section, four harps, <laughs> four pianos, percussion, and one trumpet. Mm-hmm. And weird percussion, too. Right. Weird percussion that we talked about Emil Richards when we talked about Planet of the Apes. This is stuff that's like a one-of-a-kind collection of unusual instruments that this one guy in L.A. had, and so they end up in all of these movies. It becomes annoying when you have to re-perform it. Like, <laughs> did you see that this score has a bass vibraphone in it throughout? Yeah. That's not a real instrument. <laughs> I think there's one in the world. You know, vibraphones, I forget what the low note on a real vibraphone is, but this vibraphone is all through the score playing these notes that no other instrument has. (laughs) And it's a cool sound, and he makes clever use of it. But yeah, this is a -a one-of-a-kind orchestra. Yeah, and then not only is there weird percussion, but again, like we talked about in Planet of the Apes, he takes the standard instruments and does weird things with them, especially the pianos. The four pianos. When have you ever heard of four pianos playing together? Eh, A couple things. A couple things. A couple of film scores, probably. So he has the pianos do these things where the pianist holds the sustain pedal down and then like scrapes across the strings inside the piano. Yeah, you reach your hand actually in under the lid into the part of the piano that normally you don't go near. Yeah, the big curvy part of the grand piano. (laughs) Right. Inside the box and scrape the strings or sort of swipe your hand over the strings for a smoother sound. Right. When you scrape the strings, you know the strings on a piano, the metal is wound so they have sort of ridges. Mm -hmm. And you run your thumbnail along and it'll make a grinding noise. Yeah, using your own hand as a weird mallet for this part of the instrument you're not even supposed to touch. And I think he's also got in there where you put your hand on the string to sort of mute it in a clumsy way and then play the note and it sort of thuds instead of rings because your hand is on it. Yeah, it's a thunk. It's like it's got a little metallic 
edge to the sound. It takes the warm, resonant sound of a piano note and sands it off in this jagged way. It makes it this disconcerting funk instead of a nice right. piano note. Yeah, it's like the attack and then the rest of it has been stolen. Another thing that's in there is that sometimes they pluck the piano strings with guitar picks, which makes this kind of tinny rattle sound, like a harpsichord sound. So he's got four pianos, and he uses them doing all these different effects, sometimes at the same time. They wind up playing this very sort of percussive action stuff later in the movie. And there's four harps. Yeah, I think all of this is such a beautiful choice for a detective movie. Something that I think is so great about this movie. I mean, I really like this movie. Do you? Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah, it's just a very satisfying watch. Part of what I like about it is that it really takes seriously what being a detective movie means. It really uses mm-hmm. it all the way down. It's a movie where you're always seeing things from the point of view of the detective the whole time. I think the detective is in literally every single scene. And very often the camera is behind his back, so you actually have his point of view. Right, which is sort of implicit in every detective movie, you know, but they can be loose about it. And this is very strict about that. And... There's no MacGuffin in this movie. There's no kind of like, this is all about that thing over there, and no one cares what the thing is. Right. It's not just like, well, someone killed someone for some reason, we're going to throw out 50 possible motives, and we'll pick one at the end, and that's the answer to the mystery. Mm -hmm. The movie is about the seriousness of uncovering how the city works and what people's dark secrets are. Yeah, and the script by Robert Town, the screenplay, is often hailed as one of the all-time great screenplays. You know, it's taught in film school courses. What an incredibly well-crafted job it does of parceling out the information and having the clues build upon themselves, having Jack Nicholson's detective character find out little pieces that fit together so satisfyingly. Each piece leads to the next It's incredibly well done. Yeah, it's well-crafted around being a movie about investigation, where the meaning of things needs to be determined, and then those meanings actually matter. And so I think that this music of the unknown, of the alien, of mysterious surfaces that haven't been penetrated yet, really serves it well. I think in a more superficial kind of detective movie, it might be a little bit arty or pretentious or, like, just tell the story. It doesn't need to sound like Planet of the Apes out here. But in this movie, it really works for me because at the beginning of the movie, he doesn't know what he's looking at. He's just doing his job, and we don't know what we're looking at, and it's plink-plunk sounds of of something strange. And they have an overall emotion to them of, I think you said, sort of threatening quality, but we don't know exactly what to attribute it to. And then as the movie proceeds and the kind of meaning of things emerges, then melodic content emerges. It just feels right. It feels like the deeper you dig, the more emotion there is. Oh, yeah. I absolutely agree. It's very well chosen. It's very well calculated. And it absolutely did feel to me 
like the score was being dug out as we went along the movie, that the meat of what the music was going to sound like, we don't get to it for a while. We have to kind of dig down quite some ways until we actually figure out what this is going to sound like. And that leads me into what I was going to observe, which is that, yeah, it's a very well-chosen sound. It absolutely conveys this sense of not knowing what's going on and the strangeness of investigation. But boy, for the first half of this movie, there's not a lot of music. The movie's uh, two hours, 10 minutes long. I think for the first hour, hour 10 of the movie, something like that, there's just about five minutes of score total through all of that. And it's all this ambient weirdness. That's all it's contributing. That's all it is, yeah. And what's more, we actually do see a lot of familiar tropes of detective movies. We see the dame walk into the private dick's office, and we see you know him follow some people around, driving around, tailing people, or driving to where he's going to investigate. And all of that does not get music. A lot of it really plays in silence. It would have been very easy to start playing the melody when we first see Faye Dunaway in Jack Nicholson's office. Mr. Gittes. Yes. Do you know me? Well, uh, I think I would have remembered. Have we ever met? You know, remember when we were talking about Out of Africa? And I said, what does it think it's doing that it's playing all this stuff without any music? It's just long strings of scenes that don't have any score, and it felt very unpackaged, and I didn't understand how I was supposed to relate to it then. Right, you felt like it was holding that over your head. Yes, I totally remember that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was trying to guess at, like, well, is this supposed to make it feel realistic that it doesn't have score? Is it supposed to make it feel high, pretentious in some way. And I think the reason I had that feeling is because it's not a good script for Out of Africa. And in fact, it is very hard to understand why you're watching what you're watching. But contrast that with this movie, where the script is so tight and the pacing and the parceling out of the information that we're learning is so well calculated. The fact that there isn't music for all these things, it did have that effect on me. It did make me feel like it was serious and realistic and important that it wasn't being packaged for me. It felt raw in a compelling storytelling way. Yeah, the movie didn't need the music to explain what the motivation for anything was because it was Mm -hmm. all self-motivated. Right. And so, right, the raw, sort of what I'm saying, serves a detective movie. A detective is someone who is sent out into the world and told, well, this is the world. Can you figure out what it is? And yeah, the natural sound is the most real way of engaging with that. Right. If the music had gotten in there and said, well, this is what it is before the detective got to it, then that wouldn't be satisfying. Yeah. So we as the audience sort of have to figure out what the score is in parallel with Jake Giddis figuring out what the world is. Did you notice on the soundtrack album, you can hear the full version that Goldsmith wrote of what is essentially the first cue in the movie besides the main title music that you were just describing when he watches Hollis Mulray from a distance. He's tailing him around town. He sees him go into the riverbed and then he sees him go Mm -hmm. to the place where he thinks they're going to dump the water later that night. 
Right. The original version of the cue extends uh-huh. and covers that whole sequence where Nicholson drives, you know, follows him to the beach and watches him at the beach, and then it sunsets while he's watching him. And Goldsmith wrote, first of all, some driving around music that is the theme of the movie. Oh, wow. And also wrote some mystery at the beach music at the beach, all of which is really nicely done. It's very satisfying on the soundtrack. It's good music. But I think the choice to cut it is so correct. I don't know whose choice it was, if it was Robert Evans or Jerry Goldsmith. My understanding is that Polanski wasn't really around for cutting the Goldsmith music. But yeah, it's just so smart that that's not there, even though it's good music. Wow, that reminds me of, again, back in Planet of the Apes, when there was a decision to cut some very excellent Goldsmith music from the beginning of the score, where there was a scene of action in the spaceship as it was sinking in the water and they were scrambling to get out of it. And I said then that having there be no music for that and having the music only associated with the exterior landscape was the right decision. It was the right decision to cut that music from the inside of the spaceship. Yeah, and kind of similarly, it was the right decision to cut the music here that was not about the strangeness of the world that Nicholson has to discover. That there would be music that gets ahead of him and says, okay, here's the theme of the movie. Right, we shouldn't know the theme of the movie yet. But my thought about that was, I can completely understand why Goldsmith would write that stuff there, because about 10 minutes into the movie, in almost every other movie, you would want this here. You would want to, hey, it's Jake Giddis driving around. He's a detective. Mm -hmm. Here's what it's like when we go with him in the car. It's good. It's fun. You're going to want to hear some more of this. Let's come (laughs) along with him. It's really a testament to the script and the direction that this movie is going to work so well that that would be uh, selling it short to claim that we need to be told why this is fun. That was my thought about that cut anyway. Yeah. Well, I hadn't realized that, but I agree with you. And I think it absolutely gives so much weight and power to then later in the movie when we do hear driving around music, when he's, you know, further deeper into his investigation and he knows more about what's really going on. And he drives up to various people's houses and he drives here and there. And then, boy, then we get the goods. Yeah. With the driving music. So important. But what it feels like it's saying is, this matters to him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not hearing it in the beginning absolutely made me feel this doesn't matter yet. He's not onto it yet. He doesn't really know what he's looking at yet. There's another interesting bit of unused music that was cut from early in the movie for the sequence when they are in the rowboats in the park taking photographs. Oh, but there is some music there. There's some of that piano tinkling, right? That's right. Well, in the movie, you hear the piano, which I think is tracked in from the previous cue. Uh Uh-huh. It's just this clinical kind of scientific, he's professional, and he's a professional looker at things. And here's some things he's (laughs) looking at. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, pal, let's have us a big smile. However, on the soundtrack album, you can hear the unused music that was originally written for this moment, which also gives away some of the theme, uses the first three notes of the theme, but the main thing is that it has this driving rhythm to it. It's this scraping guiro figure. 
they took out the rhythm and put in the tinkling. Okay, yeah. pal, let's have us a big smile. Because to me, rhythm says, this is pretty cool. This is pretty fun. And <laughs> this is the stuff, you know? This is an adventure. You'll love it. Yeah, that guiro, that kind of rubbing stick sound. So we wind up not really hearing it in this section, but that becomes a really important sound later in the movie as Goldsmith is putting more and more elements together. It kind of gets associated with like the conspiracy or the workings of... Yeah, it kind of feels like, you know, gears turning. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it wound up being, again, a good decision to not let us hear the gears turning just yet this early in the movie. We wind up hearing them later. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think Goldsmith does such an impressive job here of building his case sort of along with Nicholson. As Nicholson is building the case and figuring out how everything fits together, Goldsmith is fitting things together, testing ideas out and holding things back. You know, we mentioned that trumpet, that gorgeous trumpet melody that we hear for the main title playing the theme of Chinatown. I don't think you hear a note of trumpet in this score at all until nearly 70 minutes into the film. And Jack Nicholson is driving up to an orange grove that his investigations have led him to. And it's not playing a real melody. It's just this uneasy, dissonant, questioning texture. That's the first exposure that we, the audience, have to that there even is a trumpet in this score. Yeah, I think you're onto something here. It's part of a dissonant, uncertain texture, but this dissonant, uncertain texture, it's so much closer to emotion than yeah. the ones we started with that were sort of percussive and unpredictable. Yeah, absolutely. Goldsmith is adding more to his toolkit as he goes along. He's adding yeah, some emotional weight to it where there was only ambiguity before. He's adding instrumentation. You know, this character, uh, Jake Giddis, the movie's all about him. You're with him the whole time. And very little of his interior life is really made the subject of any scene. You get a sense of his character, certainly, and basically his character is Jack Nicholson, so you have a pretty strong sense of him. But how much he cares about what's going on is really communicated through this progression. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a really crucial part of what you feel is going on in this movie. The fact that this music is a little bit more disturbed at some level, like actually upset about something, you read it into this guy who's on screen the whole time, and it has story value that way. Yeah, and you know, there's been a couple of sort of action-y moments in the picture. He's had his nose slit open, for Christ's sake, and there was no music for that. He's been menaced by various goons, no music for any of that. He lost his shoe, no music for that. Right, it was a Florsheim <laughs> shoe, even. But the first time that there's any action of that sort that actually gets music for it is when he's finally found this retirement home that has all these people in whose name this conspiratorial phony land purchasing and water rights finagling is happening. So he's really uncovered a big point in the movie. He's really come down to what things are actually about. You know, before when he was being beaten up by those other people, he didn't really know why. He hadn't gotten deep enough into the mystery for it to mean anything as part of the overall story. Now he's really gotten somewhere. He's uncovered a big part of this conspiracy. And he gets in a fight with, you know, the hired muscle for the other guys. There's no music for the fight. 
There's only music after the fight. After the head of the retirement home goes to pick up the gun that fell on the floor, Nicholson kicks it away, and now the piano says, okay, now we're in business. Now this really matters. Now he's onto something, people are trying to kill him, and he understands why. This low-thunking piano trouble music after the fight, it's just such an arrival. Okay, here come the thugs that are going to try to get him again. Here comes Faye Dunaway swooping in with the car. He jumps on the running board of the car, drives off, and then he's driving with Faye Dunaway in the car, and now finally we hear the trumpet play the melody. Just the first phrase of it, and it quickly gives way to the harp, and goes out quickly for their dialogue, but now it's a real point of arrival because he's now finally gotten to an important level of the story and he's connected with the Faye Dunaway character and they're sort of in cahoots and in it together. Yeah, the audience understands just as he understands what he is entangled in. Right. And so, yeah, now we can do some real storytelling music. This is not just a uh-huh. scientific study anymore. Right, now we can actually tell the story because we figured out what the story is. Right. And if Goldsmith had tried to tell the story before Giddis had figured out what it was, it wouldn't have been right, wouldn't have been satisfying. But for it to be a click into place for us to listen to that mirrors the clicking into place of him piecing the conspiracy together, so satisfying. Yeah, it wouldn't have been satisfying, it wouldn't have been right and all that, but it would have been very typical of detective movies. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's done in pretty much every other detective movie. And this movie has this reputation that sort of stands apart, a very special mystery movie. I really think that this seriousness about what that means to be a mystery movie is part of it. And yeah, Goldsmith's score not doing what would be so easy, which is to say, another day in the exciting life of an exciting detective. Uh Start to finish is a thrilling ride. Right. It's not thrilling at first. Yeah. It's not a ride. Or at least it doesn't need to advertise that it's a ride. That's for Polanski to make sure of in the direction. The actual storytelling is about the story and... Until the audience understands, music's not going to claim that it understands. Yeah, that's very well observed. Okay, so I just want to follow this sequence a little bit further because this is, you know, the key sequence of the movie. He finally goes home with Faye Dunaway and they have their love scene. And now, of course, the love theme melody gets this beautiful rendition. Now we feel like we've really reached the meat of it. This is what was promised to us in the main title. Must have looked cute in blue. But it's not quite everything Goldsmith has to say yet. He still hasn't put everything together yet. So fine, now we've heard some action. We've heard some rhythmic things. We've heard some funky percussive sounds. Now we've heard the love theme. All the pieces are there. Jack Nicholson is so close But it's the crucial turn when he starts to suspect Faye Dunaway. She goes away, she gets a mysterious phone call, and he goes and breaks one of her taillights so that he can follow her car. And when he follows Faye Dunaway's car, when she's the quarry, now we're here. This is when Goldsmith puts all of the pieces together. We hear the trumpet melody. We hear this great 
percussive rhythmic texture with all of these pianos and all of these harps doing all of this cool stuff to give it this drive. Now he's driving and it really matters when he's on her tail is when Goldsmith says, this is where the movie really starts. I think he gets to this point and he says, now we're in. Now we're watching the movie. Yeah. And to me, that combination of all those elements has a specific psychological meaning, which is that now this character is strongly invested. Yes. He ventures something in that pillow talk scene. He makes himself vulnerable by opening up. That's the one place where we do see his interior. We hear the sound of his intimate thoughts and regrets. It's where he talks about what Chinatown means to him, and that corresponds to this theme. Bothers everybody that works there. Chinatown, everybody. To me, it was just bad luck. What? You can't always tell what's going on. So now that this tender melancholy element has come out, now it can be threatened. You know, now if she turns out to be the murderer, that's really going to hurt him. So when we hear all of the music put together, it's not just an accumulation, it's like opposing forces in the music and equivalently in the movie. There's the intimate layer and then there's the threat. There's the corruption, the world pressing down, the gears, as you said. Yeah, well, it's when his detective job circles back around to his personal life, to this woman that he has just made a connection to. Right. That's when things get serious. Yeah. That's when he's really in the movie and that's when we're really in the score, I think. Yeah. Okay, so now let's look back at where we are. We're nearly an hour and a half into the movie. And I just said that I think that this is where Goldsmith has decided the movie actually starts. What has come before? Not very much. It's been incredibly economical. He is really picking and choosing his spots. And we've been talking about how it's incredibly to the movie's benefit. And it really creates this raw sense of an important, well-told story. But I think there's something else going on here we need to talk about. Mm -hmm. Another motivation that he had to be very, very judicious for when he picked his spots for when there was going to be music. I mean, let's say what the totals are. Did you say the totals? How many minutes of music there are in this movie total? It's not much more than half an hour total, right? Oh, it's less. It's less. Is it really? I believe that there are about 27 minutes of Jerry Goldsmith music in this movie. Wow. So that is not a lot. And yeah, he was picking his spots very, very judiciously. So... How long did he have to write this score, Andy? They say he had 10 days. He had 10 days to do this. Yeah, to write a score for a two-hour and 10-minute movie, he had 10 days. He had 10 days. <laughs> Remember we said that Elmer Bernstein, when he was writing the score for To Kill a Mockingbird, it took him six weeks just to figure out what he was doing before he even started writing the music. <laughs> yeah. He had 10 days. <laughs> just even if you already knew exactly what you had to do, the labor of writing music and writing it out and getting it done takes a lot of days. Yeah. <laughs> okay, why is it that he only had 10 days? Because this score is a last-minute replacement for a score that had already been written and was rejected. I forget how close to the release date it was, but this is just like the last thing on the schedule. Get a new score. Get it as fast as possible. Yeah. So scores getting rejected is unfortunately fairly commonplace. A lot of times it will happen if a movie isn't working right and it's sort of this, you know, you can't fire the players so fire the manager sort of scapegoating. You know, the movie's in the can, the only thing they can still control is the music, so let's try something else. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't think that's what, <laughs> that's exactly what's going on here. Jerry Goldsmith here, he's quoted in Soundtrack Magazine as having said, Scores have been tossed out and redone ever since I can remember, though the only one I was called in to redo was Chinatown. And the main reason that score was rejected was because the composer wasn't right for the movie in the first place. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that is him trying to be diplomatic or do you think that that's a good assessment of what went on? I think it's both. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> I think it's him trying to be diplomatic because even saying it so clinically as the composer wasn't right for the movie, I think is being generous. And it is also what was going on. All right, let's take some time to talk about the rejected score which luckily for all of us, because this is a fascinating thing to talk about, was eventually released on CD and we can listen to it and we can actually compare the cues, which is pretty cool. Yeah. It was written by a guy named Philip Lambro, who actually John Cassavetes introduced to Roman Polanski on the set of Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, I read that. In 67. And they had sort of wanted to work together for a while and this was going to be the movie. He had sent in some of his previously written music Robert Evans, the producer, originally liked the record that he sent in of his stuff. And his stuff was, like, generally in the avant-garde direction, orchestral kind of textural spookiness. So this is what he had written previously. I mean, he had won some composing awards and he had gotten played by major orchestras and he was, you know, he was a composer with a career for real. With a career for real, but mostly in the classical realm. That's right, mostly in the I classical realm. I don't think realm. he had other scores to his credit. I think he had done a couple of small movies that were not anywhere near the production scale of this. Yeah, and, you know, he's an experimental, out there, avant-garde kind of guy and that kind of excited Polanski, I think, in theory. Yeah, I mean, I get the impression that Polanski felt like, you know, I'm this artsy Polish director here trying to stay true to my roots while I'm in Hollywood surrounded by all this Hollywoodness. And so to him, having sort of an edgy, outsider-y kind of musical sound just appealed to that, matched up with that. That's the impression I get. I don't know. You read so many stories that these people tell later. For some reason, Chinatown is a movie where the making of and the story of the conflict behind the scenes has been returned to over and over. So there is a lot of material on this, which usually means that people (laughs) started making stuff up 10 years later and then repeating that. So it's really hard to tell exactly why anyone did anything. But uh, yeah. Hey, Andy, do you think we need to talk about, you know, the problematic aspect of this movie being made by a problematic guy? Gosh, I hope not, because we're talking about it. It's going to be an episode on our show. (laughs) We got to talk about it. This movie has been around for 44 years. It has its own reputation and significance, and that's what we're addressing. All these other people worked on it. It's also, you know, got this great score that we want to talk about. So, yeah, we're just going to talk about it. What can we do? Yeah. I mean, the problem of what to do about good art made by bad people is as old as art itself. And I don't think we want to stake out a position on that problem here, uh, especially because, you know, we're here to talk about Goldsmith and not Polanski, really. So uh, I I hope that's all right. Uh, Anyway, what were we talking about, right? We were talking about how Lambro's concert music that he had written had this kind of, you know, out there sound. So let's hear a little bit of the edgy artistic music that he wrote for this movie. Thank you. 
while we're listening to it, I can read you some more quotes that people have said about it. Go ahead. Robert Town, the screenwriter, once described it as tortured Schoenberg. Mm-hmm. Town also said, uh, we had a horrendous score on the picture by some guy that Roman knew. It was dissonant, weird, scratchy. Roman was momentarily enamored of it. He said the score was perfect. He was going off to direct an operetta at Spoleto, when mercifully he ran into a grand old gentleman named Bronislaw Caper, who won an Oscar for his score of Lili. And he said, Roman, that score is killing your picture. Roman had great respect for him, and he said, okay, we better get the score changed. Yeah, the stuff I read sort of indicated that Lambro was kind of Polanski's pick and the score being a little hard to take was Polanski's choice. And it took a while for him to be convinced that, no, it really is hard to take and it really is hurting the picture. Yeah. And apparently it was this fellow European respected composer that went with him to a screening that sort of took him aside and said, listen, this is no good. That actually finally changed his mind that it had to be changed. So one of the sources that we could be turning to as we talk about Lambro's score <laughs> is a memoir that Lambro himself, who I believe passed away in 2015, but he wrote in 2007 a book published uh, by a small or self-publisher, but you can get it on Amazon, called Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, <laughs> which is his bitter reflections on his career and encounters with Hollywood people. and Yeah, bitter, gee. You know, for all you can say about this memoir, it does seem to have been sourced from diaries. He has a lot of detail that I can't imagine he really just made it all up 40 years later. Here, here's a sample passage about uh, not being able to eat the food that was served to him at Evans's place because he was on a macrobiotic diet. Ahem. The gracious and apologizing butler did manage to fix me a plate of about four peas, two leaves of lettuce, and three pieces of carrots with a hamburger <laughs> bun. It seems that Evans's refrigerator didn't stock too many vegetables. Incidentally, I did steal a delicious strawberry from Jack Nicholson's gigantic ice cream sundae when his head was turned, but I don't think he missed it because there were several more on top. That's the kind of inside yeah. scoop that only Philip Lambro could bring to you. But you know, that's the thing. I believe him. I believe that that happened. Sure. There is some dirt to be had in that book. It's just surrounded by uh, axe grinding. The right. noise of axe grinding is almost deafening. <laughs> so he represents the situation as having been that everyone was enthusiastic about his score. Certainly Evans was enthusiastic about his score and Jack Nicholson was enthusiastic about it. And that there was kind of a cowardly groupthink turn against him for the reasons that you suggested earlier, John, that, you know, when people aren't happy with the movie, it's easy to blame the score and that he can prove to you with all of these quotes that prior to that point, they all liked it and approved of it. I'm willing to grant a certain amount of credence to the idea that it wasn't like everyone knew it was bad and just Roman Polanski was resisting it. I can imagine that it took a screening for them to say, yeah, this really isn't working. Yeah, okay, fine. But uh, he is uh, (laughs) hard to take really seriously, especially when after he wrote that book, he went on this internet film score discussion forum and basically, you know, got into a flame war <laughs> uh, with all the commenters there, just bad-mouthing everything and everybody about the movie, saying nobody knew what they were doing, everybody hated everybody, everybody hated the movie, everybody hated me, I hated everybody. It, it seems like a guy who's been living with a lot of bitterness for a long time. Well, that's a humiliating experience to be working on a big movie and be told, yeah, the movie's going to go on exactly as it was, but your contribution is being snipped out and someone is replacing you at the last minute. Yeah, yeah. That that would mess with your head for the rest of your life, I can completely imagine. Okay, well, you're right. Uh, Yeah, boy, I certainly have sympathy with that. Nonetheless, it seems to have messed with his head. 
Okay, but let's get outside of his head. What do you think of this music that we've been hearing of his? I think that the choice to cut this and replace it with a seasoned pro like Jerry Goldsmith was absolutely the correct choice, made this movie what it is today, and everything about this is right. I do feel like Lambroke gets a little bit of a raw deal in having it said that what he did was crazily wrong and what Goldsmith did saved the day by turning things completely around because his choices are markedly similar to Goldsmith's. Many of them, but not well, not yeah, all. my premise is the Goldsmith score is 100% an improvement. But let's not think that that's because this guy was dead wrong. I don't think he was dead wrong about anything. I mostly think he just didn't have the skill, you know, he didn't have the years of experience that Jerry Goldsmith had mm-hmm. to execute it well. And I also think that he shows a kind of insensitivity to certain elements, but they're the kind of like, oh, your first time out, you might not realize you need to worry about this. I, I think it's just kind of mm-hmm. an inexperienced attempt to do what Goldsmith then came in and did with profound craft. What do you think? Okay, I can accept that. I mean, I am definitely inclined to dislike this music. Oh, I dislike it too. I don't... <laughs> okay, good. Let me be clear. I dislike it, <laughs> but I see it as... Um... You're right. Uh, you can absolutely see some of the moves that he makes that are similar to the moves that Goldsmith makes better. You know, setting this eerie, ambient, dissonant texture. Yeah, sure, that's something that Lambro is trying to do here. Which is why I think that quotes like Town complaining that it was tortured Schoenberg... Well, yeah, it sounds a little bit avant-garde, but then you look at what Goldsmith replaced it with. Also avant-garde tortured music. He just did it with a touch that worked. Yeah, well, you know, let's go back again to something I said about Planet of the Apes, that Goldsmith picked this incredibly avant-garde compositional technique with which to write his music. Serialism and 12-tone, atonal music, the most avant of the avant-garde. And usually I, I don't like that music because I feel like it is self-serving. It's about, hey, look at how weird and dissonant I can do music, rather than being about, you know, trying to make something sound good, or in the case of film music, trying to help tell the story. And I said that even though I dislike most serial music, I really liked Goldsmith's score that was done with that technique because he brought this storytelling oversight to it, and he was sensitive to what the movie needed and what things needed to feel like. Boy, I have the same exact thing to say here. You know, I think this Lambro music is just sounding weird for weirdness's sake, sounding dissonant, doing wacky things that you wouldn't expect music to sound like. When Goldsmith does also wacky sounding things, they are so clearly and so fully in the service of an audience's experience rather than sort of a dare to the audience's ear. All right, so let's look at a direct comparison here. Sure. So this is Lambro's music for this sequence where Giddis, the detective, Nicholson, returns to the spot in the dry riverbed. He saw Mulray talking to a Mexican boy on a horse here. And so Nicholson returns to the same spot and the boy rides up on the horse and he says, hey, there was a man here the other day and what did he ask you? And the boy, in kind of a spacey, mysterious way, says, you know, (laughs) he asked me about the water, when it comes, where it is. It's meant to be eerie. It's been directed to be eerie. 
it relates to what I was saying earlier about how the whole movie functions, that the world is this alien thing that he has to interpret. So this is something unusual that he has to interpret. It's this boy on a horse. Mm-hmm. And clearly Polanski communicated this to Lambro that that is the effect that he wanted in the scene. So Lambro has written this high string cluster. Right. That's the oppressive, dried out landscape. So here he sees the boy and says hello. And then we start to get these wind flourishes. They run up and down a scale. And the flutter tongue on the flute. And this is like spookiness. So now he has some exchanges with the boy. He says, oh, I saw you out here the other day. Hable inglés, see? And then he starts to ask him some questions. And then a trumpet comes in to sound like a portent of something terrible. This is while the crucial bit of dialogue is happening. He's got the whole orchestra playing. And they get really loud. (laughs) They really hammer it home. What's going on here? It's some terrible portent. Listen. (laughs) And then the boy turns the horse and walks away. And the music immediately calms down. And as he walks away, we hear this thumping. Yeah, and, you know, you can hear those flutes or whatever going, it's such a conspicuous thing. It's not textural. You know, it doesn't gel into a overall atmospheric quality. You're very aware of hearing that little run, hearing those notes go up and down. It undermines the idea of wanting to be atmospheric. So Jerry Goldsmith shows up, you know, I'm not sure if he just took the same spotting notes. I mean, things line up so completely that I wonder if there was a kind of, can you just replace this cue and replace this cue and replace this cue? Mm-hmm. And so he replaces this cue, and he actually makes more interest in the earlier section of the sequence where Jack Nicholson is walking down the slope, nothing is happening, no one is talking. He also has droning strings for the heat, but then there's also pianos, and there's all this movement and interest. This is where Lambro just had a continuous drone. Whereas Goldsmith makes this the most musically involved part of the scene. Yeah, right. He's scoring the detecting. He's scoring Nicholson looking at something when there's space in there to have music telling you what to feel. And then, when he's actually talking to the boy, we hear dissonant... But simple. Right. Uneasy, queasy, disturbing, but simple strings. Howdy. You uh, were riding out here the other day, weren't you? This is the part of the scene where Lambro had the trumpet and the whole orchestra turning away. Goldsmith really keeps it restrained. Right. He can edit himself. He's able to, you know, apply some superego here to his id and not run away with every dissonant thing that he can think of piled on top of each other. The water... What about the water? When it comes. What I see when I look at this is really a matter of craft. It's do you understand that if you're doubling what's on screen, there's a double occupancy problem. Mm -hmm. Your job is to step to one side and, you know, bring it in and then bring it out and let it stand alone or support it a different way. The stuff Lambro does, to me, it's the sound of not knowing any better. Mm -hmm. It's like you do this a couple times, you learn like, oh, I can't get loud when they're talking. 
It's not necessarily an ego thing. Eh. It's just a craft thing. And you haven't had practice at this. Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree he should have known better and that it's an element of craft that he doesn't have. But I think also that it is egotistical. I think that, I mean, that's sort of my reaction to this whole style of music is that, you know, dissonance for dissonance's sake is sort of massaging your own ego. You know, look what notes I can put together that other people didn't put together. Well, I'm just saying Goldsmith's cue has just as many strange, dissonant elements. He just chooses them and places them with much better instincts. I think Lambro's intention was to deliver exactly the same kind of atmosphere to the same moment in the movie. And he thought he would do it by, yeah, really hammering it at exactly the moment when he thought it was supposed to happen. And Goldsmith yeah. is someone who knows you do it right before and then you back away. Yeah, you're right. Uh, they're both working with a similarly dissonant palette. And the difference is that Goldsmith, as you said, has a much better honed feel for how to choose and place those dissonances. Those were good words. I guess I'm just tempted to make a connection between the kind of a guy who would blare a bunch of dissonant notes in your face where they don't belong and they don't work, and the kind of guy who would write a book all about how nobody understood how much of a genius he was. But maybe that's just my own axe to grind. <laughs> I mean, I I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, but, uh, you know, can't deny it. Fair point. You were right to point out that the spotting is very similar, except in this one spot where Lambro has written music in a scene that Goldsmith didn't. And that is when, as I said before, Giddis drives to this orange grove and he's snooping around the orange grove in his car and then all of a sudden somebody shoots at him. And there's somebody chasing him on horseback and he drives through the orange trees and then eventually they shoot out the tire of his car and it crashes into a tree and he's kind of beaten up and frisked by these kind of dopey farmers. So it's this whole action sequence that Goldsmith lets play by itself without any music. Mm -hmm. But Lambro has written a cue for it. Lambro actually talks about this cue specifically in his memoir. He says that he did see the Jerry Goldsmith score. And he says, Goldsmith was no fool. I could see that he had avoided as much work as possible in scoring Chinatown. <laughs> he naturally circumvented all the difficult scenes, such right. as the Orchard Lane sequence, which genuinely needed energetic chase music as Nicholson uh -huh. has a run-in with some red-faced farmers. This section, which Polanski definitely wanted scored, required a lot of fast, aggressive music, and that meant a multitude of notes per second and a tremendous amount of labor, even for someone like Goldsmith, who never does his own orchestration but works from a short score. Yeah, boy. Besides the attitude problem there, he is wrong that this is just a matter of work-saving. There should not be music here for the reason I was talking about earlier. These are not important characters. This conflict is a misunderstanding. They think he's one of the people who's trying to kick them off the land. If it were scored like it was exciting, it would be essentially lying to the audience about what right. is important and what is going on. Goldsmith is absolutely right that it would be wrong for there to be music here. Yeah, he absolutely had to pick his spots because he only had 10 days. So, yeah, there definitely was a triage he had to go through of what's the important stuff that I had to do? What's my job? What do I have to get done? Yeah, and scoring that chase through the orchard, he did not have to get done. Another thing he did not have to get done was writing any music for this brutal, incredible, famous scene towards the end of the movie, the confession where Faye Dunaway finally reveals the terrible secret, and Nicholson slaps her. My sister, my daughter! I said I want the truth! Oh, it would be terrible if there was music in there. It would be terrible if there was music here. That's not his job. 
what is his job is to create this sense of inexorable momentum leading into it. Again, when Nicholson is driving to this house where Catherine is being kept, again, we hear this awesome rhythmic summation of the theme with all of the other textural elements. It just feels like he's getting propelled to the finish line, to the end of the mystery. Also, the strings building up on top of this thing, more and more tension. Yeah. We were really coming to a head here. This is it. The tragedy is going to burst out here. Yeah. You wait. You wait. He's gotten to the end of the mystery. He's unraveled the whole string, and the music gets him to that spot and then steps aside for the scene to happen because that's not his job. And then what is his job again is after the scene is over, after Faye Dunaway says, those aren't my husband's glasses, now we need the music again to go, ah, there's one more piece of the puzzle. How do you know? He didn't wear bifocals. And also, when she reveals Catherine, now we know who Catherine is. We feel sympathy for this family tragedy. And there's this, again, the delicate, tender, emotional music comes out. Mm -hmm. And it feels good. It's like we earned it. We earned having a feeling about this. Yeah, right. And it's the theme on the piano alone. So evocative. Catherine, say hello to Mr. Giddes. Hello. Uh, But can I get one more dig in at Lambro? (laughs) Uh, I just want to say another totally ridiculous thing that he did when we finally, at the end of the movie, finally get to actual Chinatown and we're finally in the titular location, which, of course, is a total metaphor for the unnameable, impenetrable corruption of unseen forces. Doesn't really have to do with Chinese people at all. Goldsmith knows that. When we get to Chinatown, here's what he does. It's just like a punctuation. It's an emphasis of all the stuff that he's been doing already. When we get to Chinatown, Lambro does this. Which, boy, come on. Yeah, I mean, yes, that is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's embarrassing. And you read people talking about this unused score, and they all mention, can you believe he put Chinese-sounding music for Chinatown? Yeah, Goldsmith himself said that in that same soundtrack interview I quoted earlier. He said, I couldn't believe it. It was Chinese-sounding. Right, yeah, exactly. Which makes sense he couldn't believe it, because (laughs) it's so blatantly, so obviously not what the movie is about. It feels like the thing no one even needs to say anymore. Like, that movie Chinatown, you know, it's not really about Chinatown. Everyone (laughs) goes through this. And for the movie itself to not have really gotten the message yet, yes, is sort of embarrassing. That said, I did think about it a little, and I think that, like, it's obviously wrong in retrospect for those of us who have the luxury of knowing what's right. But when I thought about, you know, why might someone do this, 
if they really did understand the script, I thought, well, you know, it's this central metaphor to the movie. Part of the metaphor is the actual exoticism of the Chinese language that he can't speak and the place, Chinatown, where he doesn't know what's going on. And it kind of makes sense that you'd think, well, there's not an establishing shot. There's not a shot of the gate and the people and the lights. I guess. There isn't. And uh, yeah, I think I read Lambro saying he felt like, well, he and music would do that. It's a terrible choice. And it's also (laughs) a choice that makes a kind of sense to me. I can sort of see how he would arrive at that. Yeah, all right, I guess. But I think the whole point of the movie that he missed in doing that is that it's not exotic because it's Chinese. The whole movie, Giddis has been trying to figure out what is what in this eerie landscape, this alien landscape that we've been talking about. That's been the point of the whole movie, to come to the end and say, ha the answer is it was Chinese people. He didn't speak Chinese. <laughs> is <laughs> That is so not what, what the point is. Yeah, this metaphor that's built into the movie, built into the script, is sort of delicate. And he just kind of goes two steps too far with it here. Yeah, all right. It is a misunderstanding of the metaphor, but it's not a 100% misunderstanding of it. It's like a 70% misunderstanding of the metaphor. <laughs> I'll give you 85 Okay, okay, I'll take it. Yeah, look, I'm not defending the score. I just think, like I said before, because it is a bad score and it was right to replace it, (laughs) it can be easy to overlook the fact that it kind of established the roadmap that Goldsmith followed in creating his good score. Yeah. You know, you could easily imagine an alternate score to Chinatown that really took a completely different tack in... How to spot it, how to treat the drama, what Mm -hmm. kind of sounds to use, and this doesn't. Yeah, it's a one-for-one replacement, like you said earlier. Yeah, it's really like the skill and sensitivity level has been turned up on basically the same kind of score. Mm -hmm. I mean, the most stark example of that is the love theme that is really the centerpiece of the score. You know, Lambro had a kind of sentimental love theme too, and it's his main title and it's his love scene music. It is also kind of jazzy, kind of slow. These choices are all kind of appropriate for the style of movie and the nature of this, you know, the detective and the dame fall for each other thing. Yeah, that all kind of fits. But these harmonies are emotionally of no value to the movie. That's my take on this. Hmm. These harmonies, the actual sound moment to moment of this doesn't get the flavor. I mean, it's also not a great tune. The phrases are the wrong lengths and it jumps around in an awkward way. But, you know, as far as hitting the target, the very biggest target of this type of movie and this type of relationship, yeah, sure, this is in that zone. But then the much narrower target of this particular movie and these particular characters and what's going on between them. Yeah, you want to hear somebody hit the bullseye. Yeah. Here's what it sounds like when you hit the bullseye. (laughs) 
we're listening to the love scene cue, the main showcase for this theme by itself with all of its emotional meaning in the middle of the score. The particular melancholy of this is so, so right. It just yeah. animates the whole spirit of the movie. And if it weren't there, you probably wouldn't understand where that melancholy lives in this story. But it's beautiful. And I think it comes down to having picked the right harmony. It all kind of revolves around this minor nine chord. It's a minor chord plus some notes above that that have a richness, a wistful quality. Yeah, it's shifting between basically two chords, right? Going back and forth for at least the first couple phrases. Mm -hmm. And each of those two chords, it's a minor chord with some extra notes that makes each of them sound stable. You know, it doesn't sound like it's a dissonance that needs to resolve. It sounds like a stable place to be, but also complex. Yeah, you know, the thing about this minor nine chord that it starts with, the main chord of this, is that can be the ending place. It could also be a place that needs to move on. It's not really clear if it's the ending or not. Right. And that's the feeling you have throughout this theme of kind of, I'd like to settle into this. I'd like this to be a home. I don't know how to put it exactly. It's both grounded and mobile. There's a poignancy in that the closest it can come to home is always susceptible to sort of slipping to somewhere else. And I think Mm, that's sort of the, the way the characters feel. Or really, it is the way the characters feel because this music is there resonating with that aspect of what they're saying. Why is it bad? Like when Jack Nicholson does this little speech about what happened in Chinatown. I was trying to keep someone from being hurt. I ended up making sure that she was hurt. Was there a woman involved? Of course. And then when she asks, dead... You hear this piano with this bass. Yeah, it gives a spooky ending. So ominous. The sense that you're in this kind of hovering, out-of-time space, this post-coital scene, which, I gotta say, as far as sexual illusions go, the, like, cut from before sex to after sex, which is in so many movies, this is just the best it could possibly be navigated music. I love that cut so much. Yeah, and this terrific change happens. It's right on this great chord change, where both the instrumental texture changes, the strings come in, and it moves to a new harmonic space right on that cut from before to after. Yeah, and anticipating the cut, you hear this string note, It gets ready in the orchestra. Here it comes. Mm -hmm. It swells. And then it takes over. It like sounds like editing. Yeah. And there's something sort of mature about it in that it makes the scene not be about sex. So often when that happens in a movie, it's like, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. And we can't show it to you. And they did it. And here it's like... You know, the point of it is that they're getting to this emotionally intimate place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know you. I want to know more about you. Not now. And it's just composed so beautifully. Those strings under you there. Really don't like to talk that really that, gets me. I feel like this is just exquisitely assembled. It's exquisitely assembled. It's also exquisitely performed. I want to call out the trumpet player for this. 
the guy who's playing this beautiful rendition, this beautiful, sweet, achingly poignant melody is a guy named Yuan Racy, who was the trumpet guy in Hollywood for a long, long time. Do you know about him? I know about him mostly because his name is connected with this, but uh, yeah, tell me. He had an incredibly long career. He played with the Glenn Miller Orchestra. He played for countless scores. He plays the trumpet solo in the middle of An American in Paris. That's this guy. He played on the Ben-Hur score that we've heard before. You know, all that fanfare trumpeting. He was the go-to guy. So the funny story about him playing on this score that I heard from my wife's colleague, Jonah, who's a professional trumpet player and a a listener of ours, uh, the inside trumpet player's scuttlebutt, is that he was on vacation when he got the call. He had not touched his instrument for two weeks when he was called in to play this session. And, you know, it was a last-minute thing. It's a last-minute score. But for a trumpet player to not play for two weeks really is detrimental. Like, brass players have muscles in their faces that you and I, Andy, we don't even know about. And I don't want to (laughs) know. And you're not going to (laughs) know. You know, what's called embouchure, the precise application of tension in your face and your lips that you have to apply is so demanding, particularly with trumpet players. They absolutely are in danger of losing their chops if they don't keep it up all the time. So him being two weeks cold from his instrument was a big deal, and he was apprehensive about it. Went into the recording session thinking, uh, you know, maybe I'll just hide in the back of the section this time. You know, I'll let somebody else play first trumpet. And he shows up and realizes he's the only trumpet. (laughs) He's, in fact, the only wind instrument at all. And then he plays this. So that's how great he was. I saw a quote from Razy. The orchestrator, Arthur Morton, said that he should play the solo sexy, but like it's not good sex. (laughs) Well. (laughs) Which is a lovely description of this kind of, you know, this theme is just such a great theme. It sounds like essentially detective movies, such a perfect detective movie theme. But when you really start listening to it, like, well, it's not really a mystery movie theme and it's not really a 30s theme it's really a jerry goldsmith 1974 composition but it's just so rich and it's so smart about how to bring the emotional truths that it gets at Mm -hmm. to a place where it applies to yeah the past and yeah this mystery and it's just a beautiful composition and it's pretty much the only you know real melodic piece that he had to write in these 10 days because the rest of it is these sort of textural things which do recur which he does take seriously as material but this is the theme this is the one theme in the movie and uh an interesting thing i have found out about how he came up with this theme in 10 days and this is original research you have not heard this anywhere else you're hearing this here first oh wow that's right, John. Yeah? In fact, if you Google this after you listen to this and you find it anywhere on the web, they heard it here too, because I have Googled it right prior to recording and it is not <laughs> anywhere on the web. You got this from me. Uh, settling this score exclusive. This is an exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> so Jerry Goldsmith had a long career in television. Even beyond this point, he wrote a lot of show themes and scored episodes of things and had been doing that for years. And one of the things that he did was these prestige teleplays, you know, plays for television Playhouse 90 and things like that. And in 1968, he had done a play for the short-lived CBS Playhouse called The People Next Door. 
it's uh, contemporary issues teleplay about suburban couple and, oh my God, our daughter is taking LSD and birth control. How did this happen? Well, maybe it's because you're an alcoholic mom and you're a philanderer <laughs> dad and, oh my God, what drama? <laughs> you can imagine the sort of thing. It's very 1968. Uh, it's uh, Lloyd Bridges and Kim Hunter, both of whom are friends of the show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Jerry Goldsmith wrote the music for this thing that I don't think it was performed live, but it's one of these things that, you know, it's like an event and it only was on TV once. And here's how the music for the end title went. That this sounds like this at all, I just completely stumbled across. So I don't know what the connection here is. Wait, you were just flipping through old episodes of CBS Playhouse and you went, wait a minute. I mean, not to get too much into my sources, but I was at a library where they had old stuff and I thought, oh, let's see if any famous uh, composers are in here. And Oh, they've got some scores by Jerry Goldsmith. Let's take a look. And then I saw the score and I said, wait a minute. This looks like something I might recognize. (laughs) The point is, here's this thing that he had written for a one-off use six years earlier. And I completely sympathize with the, gosh, I only have 10 days. Let me grab at some material that kind of suits the occasion. I also read, uh, I saw an interview with Robert Town, the writer, where he said, actually, you know, it was Robert Evans's idea to have a trumpet solo, which I can kind of fit those two stories together by imagining that maybe Evans said to Goldsmith, could you do like maybe a melancholy trumpet solo or something? And Goldsmith thought, aha, I did that once. Let me go get that and soup it up, make it better. That's completely a theory. Yeah, makes total sense. But it makes some sense, right? That's what I would do if I had written this. (laughs) Yeah. And nobody had really heard it or remembered it. Yeah, and certainly the Chinatown version is much more sophisticated, goes much deeper. Yeah, it's not a full self-plagiarization, but yeah, I think absolutely you're right that he took from this well because in chinatown he uses those first three notes which are the thing in common da 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 as sort of a motif that sometimes shows up by itself he really thinks of that as the nugget the core of the theme and that's the part Mm -hmm. that's borrowed but i did think it was interesting just to contemplate that originally this texture with this trumpet solo and these chords was supposed to be a kind of you know oh what's happening to the kids let's worry about the suburbs kind of topical very special episode yeah it was supposed to be very special episode music (laughs) that he was like well you know let me just go deeper into that Uh it just sort of deepens the tragedy of this thing that sounds like a little tv thing and makes it into something really lasting well that is super cool that you found that and yeah that absolutely has to be a window into his process for this but I want to make clear that we say that I don't think that takes anything away from the achievement of what he did for Chinatown. No, just as I would say, you know, when I said earlier, like, I don't know who did this cut. I don't know if it was Goldsmith or Evans or who, but right. it's a good cut. Yeah, all I can say is that the score as it is now mm-hmm. works so beautifully. Yeah, exactly. I think you actually did show me the score that you found for this mm-hmm, piece. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to point out, I think I remember seeing that in the actual score notation in the music manuscript, it says on the trumpet part, it's notated that the trumpeter should play his trumpet through a hat. (laughs) Like instead of a mute at the end of his horn, he should hold a fedora over it. Yeah, a felt mute, right? A felt, sure, yeah. Felt hat mute. And I just thought that was such a cool thing to do. I had a trumpet guy come in and record something for me a little later on, and I said, oh, put a hat in front of it. Here, I got a hat. (laughs) Did it sound the way you wanted? Uh, Not particularly. But I think I wound up having him just use the straight mute anyway. In Chinatown, that hat is not notated on the score, I don't think. No, I don't think Yuan Raisi plays through a hat. It is a beautiful performance. 
mean, you're absolutely right to say that the particular performance by this particular player has a real impact on the movie. It really does. Sure. That character comes across. So I'm very pleased with us for not having just gone to it obsessively. We haven't mentioned it at all, but I think we should mention what is surely one of the top, uh, I didn't look on the quotes list, but there's a very famous quote at the very end of this movie. Uh And (laughs) you talked in the past when we would get to famous quotes about, hey, look, hey, the music is what's making them a famous quote. This quote is not spoken over music. But it is punctuated by music. Right. And I wanted to know what you thought about that. I feel like it's not a musical moment, and then Goldsmith kind of lands it anyway. Mm-hmm. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. I just thought that chord that comes in after that famous, famous line that kind of seals the whole movie and proves that this script knew where it was going the whole time and is you have to accept the things that you couldn't control and couldn't understand and that just went to hell and something terrible just happened. Yeah, that's just the big, terrible world out there and deal with it. That's just the big, terrible world. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Oh, is that what the quote is? It's something like that. And then Goldsmith plays a chord. And it's just right. It's just right. It is definitely just right. And I think that one of the things that we have kind of learned over the course of this podcast is that a lot of times the music does its most important and most effective work after a thing happens. We witness the thing happen. The characters witness the thing happen. And then the music needs to be there as we think about what it was and as we process it. Yeah, exactly. So I absolutely think that, yeah, having the music come in to say, oh, okay, yeah, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown, Oof, is totally adding to the impact of this line. Yeah, like you said, he lands it. So uh, maybe it's time for us to land this. Sounds like we're going to put this both pretty high up on the list, Andy. How high are you going to put it? I was hesitant to put it too high in part because it's just so little music and so much yeah, fair point. In a servant role that, like, the movie was already there, and he just went in and tried to give it the score that it needed. Hmm. But the more I thought about it, I thought, you were saying hitting the smallest target. I feel like this elevates the movie by being that, that short, supportive score that it needed, so much more precisely than most movies get. Mm-hmm. I don't think that Chinatown would be the intensely satisfying classic that seems to transcend its genre that it is if it were not for this score just showing up and doing the professional thing with so much acuity yeah so i got excited about that as i watched it over and over i thought even if this is just kind of good smart scoring for a very carefully scripted movie that was already directed it just heightens everything about it it makes it deep and rich and yeah goldsmith strikes this note that makes the deepest level of this movie resonate makes you feel like you were in touch with the deepest underpinnings of why this is a worthwhile story and it just took a superb sensitivity to do that and everything about the movie watching experience benefits from it so i'm gonna put it above sunset boulevard and under robin hood because i feel like chinatown is pretty much gives as much to a movie as it can without the movie basically having been built around the music Okay, so that puts it at number four on your list overall. I think I am also going to put it at number four overall. It's in a slightly different ordering, but I think we feel very similarly about it. So that means that I'm putting it underneath To Kill a Mockingbird, but above A Streetcar Named Desire. Mm -hmm. 
and also above on the waterfront, mm-hmm. Robin Hood, Sunset Boulevard, plenty, all that. So I agree. I think that pound for pound, this is maybe being as effective as anything we've talked about. And yeah, it hits that bullseye. And I think you already articulated very nicely how important, how keenly observed it is, how skillful, how memorable. It's all of those things. I think I'm going to leave it underneath To Kill a Mockingbird just, again, because To Kill a Mockingbird, I feel like, gave a really special resonance to a special movie that was totally necessary to the movie feeling as it does and being understood as it is. And yeah, there's just a lot more of it. So even though pound for pound, maybe Chinatown, but at the end of the day, like I got to respect how heavy, <laughs> how yeah, heavy sure. the stuff above it is. But yeah, it's up there. This was a real treat. You know, your list is different from mine. We're making them different because I don't know why we're doing this at all. Uh, <laughs> but your list is, every time you tell me what you're doing on your list, I think, yeah, right, it makes sense to me. Makes more sense than this AFI list does. <laughs> Okay, well, speaking of the AFI list, what does it have in store for us next time? Um, I would have to look, John. <laughs> yeah, usually I'm the one who says what it is, but I forget off the top of my head. <laughs> I believe it is the Magnificent Seven. Oh, that's right. It is the Magnificent Seven. So here's another repeated composer we were just talking about, Elmer Bernstein's score for To Kill a Mockingbird. Here he is again. Elmer Bernstein's score for the consummate Western epic, The Magnificent Seven, from 1960. Right. So I'm not going to fall for the temptation to say pretty different from To Kill a Mockingbird, because what if we watch it and it's kind of the same? I don't know. Let's find out. It seems on the surface like it's going to be pretty different. Yeah, I'm also pretty confident it's not going to sound like Planet of the Apes either. (laughs) You never know. You have to watch to find out. I have a hunch. All right, we're really getting up there. Look, we just did the number nine movie, number eight, and look at the stuff coming up. It's exciting stuff. Yeah, I would say we've already done some exciting stuff. Most of these movies now have very good music. (laughs) Well, they better. (laughs) I think it's not a coincidence. Most of these movies have very good music. And I'm I'm enjoying it. Yeah, we're doing this whole series criticizing the AFI's judgments about things, but let's at least be on the record as saying the things that they chose are not a coincidence. Yeah. All right, well, we'll be back next time. Until then, hey, tell your friends about us. Write us a review on iTunes and talk back to us on Twitter at ScoreSettlers gotten a lot of fun feedback from a lot of listeners and really appreciate that uh yeah and come back next time john will you come back next time (laughs) i will i'll come all the way back all right so then so will i (laughs) it's a deal (laughs) magnificent magnificent no no i I don't like making further reference to the next time's movie okay forget it andy it's jonathan